You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 19th of February 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be looking at Roman Catholicism. Now, this is based off of a video that I was sent about a week ago. And um, a popular YouTuber went to visit a cathedral in the United States. I think it's... um, yeah, it's uh, the Cathedral of the Madeleine in Salt Lake City, Utah. Anyway, um, I watched and I thought, okay, first of all, I thought I wasn't going to reply to it, was going to do something in Bethel, but I decided perhaps do this instead. Um, just to let people know as well, this program's been done really, really kind of late over here. Uh, I don't know, something about maybe like 20 to 12 over here. So this isn't going to be an incredibly long show. So we're going to try and go through fast through the through the material and see how fast we can get through it. This also will be the last program until about... Mm, let me get a calendar in front of me. Anyway, I haven't exactly decided a date when I'm coming back with the program, but it'll be mid to late April, and um, definitely scratch off the first two weeks of April, and possibly back in week three um, on the Tuesday, and in all likelihood it might be, but... Um, I think I'll make up my mind after my exams are finished. I'm in college and I'm in second year. I'm training for the ministry in case everybody's not aware. And um, yeah, so we're going to do one last program for the next two months. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. There's been a, you know one or two people emailing me just wondering what's going on and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully from April to about September, there'll be regular programming. There'll be the odd break here and there, even in the, in the summer, because um, I plan to take some time off after college. Um, that's something I'm trying to do now. It's something I've never really done. They call it is. Um, but I think it's important if you're going to be um, in, if you're working to your best, it's, it, you need to unplug every now and again and recharge the batteries. Otherwise, you're just... Honestly, you'll get you'll get sick. So um, we're going to be dealing with a video that w- that's been sent in by a brother in the Lord, brother in the Lord, who I have I've never met in person, but I've talked to him back and forth for years, and um, it feels almost like I do know him. Um, but he's uh, he sends me really good stuff, and um, so and we're both from Roman Catholic backgrounds, so especially when he when he brings up. I think he's from a Roman Catholic background. Anyway, so in this video, there's a YouTube channel called the 10-Minute Bible Hour. Um, I don't think it's been going that long. Anyway, and uh, the man is not a minister or pastor or anything. He seems to be a little bit of a... Somebody who's just dabbling and is just doing a channel and... 
here's the thing. Whatever his intentions are or anything else like that, he there's dangerous stuff going on here. And regardless of what your position is within the church, he's doing incredible harm here. And this is kind of why I'm going to cover this. Okay. Um, I'm going to play this video, this video, just for the first few minutes, just to set the context of it. Um, he is going to describe, this presenter of the 10-minute Bible Hour, uh, the video on YouTube, if you want to watch it, is a Protestant tours a Catholic cathedral. And um, this is just to give a bit of context of what the whole thing is. This was, by the way, this was posted like July of last year. Oh, this is incredible. Welcome to Cathedral of the Madeline. Hey, I'm Matt. This is the 10 Minute Bible Hour. And whether you're into the whole Christianity thing or not, I bet you've heard of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. These are two different expressions of Christian faith. They're kind of two of the three really big ones historically. And Protestantism is about a 500-year-old expression that was born out of Roman Catholicism. Some theological issues were percolating and people were debating them. And ultimately, these two groups ended up deciding, like, we're just doing different things here. We think different stuff. And there's this parting of ways. So like your Lutherans, your Methodists, your Baptists, these are all different types of Protestants, whereas Roman Catholicism continues to be kind of a, a singular monolithic Thing. I've always had pretty good relationships with. Um, I don't want to be stopping and starting it all the time, but it's not. Um, there's factions even within the Roman Catholic Church. It's just the fact that they have decided since Vatican I to go with papal infallibility as an official doctrine, at least. I mean, it was there beforehand since the Middle Ages, at least. And the difference is very, very simply for those. We're joining, perhaps, don't know the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. It's great. I don't want to discourage people with a platform for speaking about their faith and pointing towards Christ. And we're, we're, we're not all going to do it, quote-unquote, you could say, perfectly. But at the same time, What's the difference? And we should know this, no matter who we are, if we are professing believers in Jesus Christ, whether we use the Protestant title or not. We believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church rejects that. Now, it may make it sound like the Roman Catholic Church is the church that goes back to Christ. It, 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 Look, the Roman Catholic Church was a true church at one point, but, or the church Catholic or whatever you want to call it, and it eventually apostatized. There were groups outside of the Roman Catholic Church that adhered to the gospel. The Waldensians, by the way, they're still Waldensians in Italy today. They're not exactly the most theologically sound, but there are some Waldensians, Valdesi as they're called, um, in Italy still to this day. And um, I think they've got their own confession, but they've they've kind of gotten fairly communist, and they're a bit they're very ecumenical, Rome and things like that. Um, long and short of it is, it's not just well, you know, this is parting it a ways and all this kind of stuff, and we disagree. 
a different gospel. And, with, and a church without the gospel is no longer a church. Roman Catholics, um, I've always had pretty high regard for Roman Catholicism, but it occurred to me the other day that pretty much everything I know about Roman Catholicism has been taught to me, told to me, explained to me by other Protestants. This I've I listened to this before, but sometimes when you listen to it a few times, different things grab you. It's like I'm a Protestant, but of a high regard for Roman Catholicism. Look, we got to be careful that we don't end up hating individual Roman Catholics. We should love them and share the gospel with them, be good neighbors to them, all sorts of things. Um, are we reaching out to them? All that kind of thing. Love your enemy. Who is your neighbor? To love your neighbor as yourself, it includes the Roman Catholic. I, I come from a part of the world where we probably struggle with that at times. Um, Northern Ireland. Um, there's divide and all this kind of stuff. Not in every area. I think it can, you know, sometimes it can be a bit of a caricature um, can be formed in people's minds about the place. But I digress. We should reach out to Roman Catholics and love individual Roman Catholics. But at the same time, the Church of Rome is a false church. It is a synagogue of Satan. It is essentially the reason in the book of Revelation it's described as a harlot church is because she is unfaithful to the bride of Christ, to Christ. Sorry. She's been cut off from the visible church. The Antichrist has come out from the bosom of the visible church, Boniface the third in the in the seventh century, six oh six AD, takes a title to himself universal bishop. And many, now, this isn't just a Protestant doctrine, by the way, the Waldensians, the Bogomils, the, the Paulicians, all these groups recognized that the Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, was the Antichrist. Even Gregory the Great in the 6th century saw that anybody who took that title, Universal Bishop, was the Antichrist. Anyway, long story short... If we have a love for Christ, can we have a high regard for an idolatrous apostate harlot system? Can we claim to love our wife if we are our eyes are gazing towards and having a high regard towards a prostitute? Does it make sense? Of course it does not. And this is the problem. Modern Protestants or modern professing Protestants, using the term in a nominal sense, are getting more and more seduced by Roman Catholicism. And a lot of it's got to do with we want to be seen as academically respectable. Because more and more, oh yeah, we mightn't agree with them on everything, but I'll read them anyway. And that has crept in massively. I'm not saying don't read everything, but it's like the stuff that's being recommended now and... 
you know, you've got somebody was emailing me the other day about Tim Keller and Tim Keller recommending reading the Catholic mystics from, we recommended reading Ignatius of Loyola, ridiculous things like that. And the seduction of modern Protestantism, J.I. Packer, back in the 1990s, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, he signed an, an agreement with other Roman Catholics. It's not an official document or anything like that, but it's a worrying document, to say the least. And in that document, it just says, we're saved by grace. We're saved you know, in Christ by grace, through faith. I say, oh, well, you know, Roman Catholics and Protestants, we agree. But they even admit in the document, um, Richard John Newhouse and... Um, Chuck Colson and J.A. Packer, when they wrote that book, I think it was like 1984, 1985, when that book came out, I think it was Richard Janu has said at the very end of the book that it was by in it was intentionally the solas of the Reformation were removed. Rome stays the same, but the Protestant church is seduced more and more. Modern Protestants are being seduced more and more. And again, it's not that we're hard and harsh and unloving toward our Roman Catholic neighbors, toward our Roman Catholic whoever, who we try to reach with the gospel. But at the same time, there's no peace with Rome. And we should make a distinction, by the way, between the, the Roman Catholic system, the system we should never make any peace with, and see that our teachers are false teachers leading people to hell. You know, at some point, it'd be pretty cool to go and hear what Roman Catholics think and see what they do by talking to an actual Roman Catholic in an actual Roman Catholic church. So I put out feelers with a whole bunch of different churches, and one got back to me called the Cathedral of the Madeline in Salt Lake City, which is actually secretly who I was really hoping would get back to me. And they were kind enough to take a flyer on some Protestant stranger from the internet and invite me there with a camera to see what happens. So I went, I met with Father Martin Diaz, and, well, here's what happened. Oh, Father... So anyway, you get the idea. He meets up with this, um... Diaz, uh, Father Martin Diaz. And he gets a tour around. I'm going to come back to this later. A shocking, particularly shocking part from this, but we're going to look at the interview now. Um, a, Pro a Protestant talks with a, a Catholic priest, because that's where I think there's more information on, and the, one of the reasons I did I wanted to do this video is it, it, it's oddly characteristic of modern Protestantism. Much of modern Protestantism is quote-unquote mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. It's William Lane Craig's mere Christianity, well, borrowed from C.S. Lewis, of defending, well, you know, the general creeds of Christendom. Which would include Roman Catholicism. And while we'll often... What I find interesting is today we'll often fight each other, and I think the devil loves when we do that, who agree in the gospel. I think we should strive, those who do agree in the gospel, especially creedal reformed theology, 
should aim with all that we have to aim towards as much unity as possible. But we're friendly towards Rome and her false teachers. But we'll fight each other, won't we? It's a sad indictment, but I digress. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm Matt. This is the 10-Minute Bible Hour, and I am a Protestant Christian who recently had the amazing opportunity to go and tour the Cathedral of the Madeline in Salt Lake City, Utah. A man named Father Martin Diaz showed me around. This church is mind-bogglingly beautiful. It's loaded. No, it's not. Um, any role. I've been, look, I go, and sometimes I will go in, in Italy, in different countries. I lived in Italy for three years. I, I, and I'll look around the different architecture and stuff like that purely out of, um, I went to the Vatican as well, purely out of research and learning about history and all that. But it's not beautiful. It's disgusting. It's idolatrous. It's, it's, it's almost like spiritual pornography. It's something, it's vile. Uh, it should make our skin crawl. Um, I'm going to skip through because there's a bit of violation of the second commandment here. Theological meaning from wall to wall. And even if I don't maybe agree with every single point of the theology behind it, it was still a hugely impactful experience for me. I learned a ton. It stretched me. It was awesome. But I wanted to do more. And so Father Diaz and I sat down and agreed to have a conversation about those key theological things that a Protestant like me and a Catholic like him typically see differently. I thought it was a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. So I'm going to get out of the way and bounce over to that right now. What's the Roman Catholic view of Scripture? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Who wrote it? I mean, what would you tell somebody who's coming into your church and they say, explain what the Bible's about to me? So I think one of the things for Roman Catholic... Oh, I'm on mute. Um, just really quickly before he gets in and answers it, if you want to understand what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, look, uh, most of the Roman Catholic... I was an altar server growing up. I, up until, I think between the ages of 9 and 12, I was, they called it altar servers, altar boys years ago. You really want to find out what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's a very... Get the Catholic Catechism. Okay. Um, okay, you can read the Council of Trent. It's pretty much the same thing. Vatican II is pretty huge, um, but this is going to get straight to the point. Ever since 1994, they've been publishing the Catholic Catechism, the Roman Catholic Catechism. And uh, this book, I keep recommending it. I read this years ago, and it's absolutely brilliant, because one of the big claims to Roman Catholicism is this, that they have history on their side, on broken line, all this kind of stuff. Uh, William Webster... Um, wrote this book called, and he's written a number of books around similar areas, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. Now, what William Webster did, this book's maybe was it 20 years old, whenever it came out. Anyway, Banner of Truth published it. Do get it. It's one of the best books I've read on Roman Catholicism. And what he does is he takes Roman Catholic dogma and co compares it with history. Lots of people have compared it with history and that are scripture and people should do that. However, at the same time, usually their claims about history and tradition and you know, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and all this kind of stuff goes unchallenged. And William Webster does a great job of going through that. But look, here's where you go to find out. 
My point is, lots of Roman Catholic priests, when I was an altar server, didn't have a clue about Roman Catholic doctrine half the time. So you can get Roman Catholic priests, you can get all sorts of beliefs, the, and you have to take people where they're at and find out what they believe. You know, when you're witnessing one-on-one to somebody, it's, it's all well and good. You might, like, point out the transubstantiation is wrong and it's blasphemous. Roman Catholic might hear that go, huh, you're right, yeah. Because I never thought about it. When I was growing up as a Roman Catholic, I never thought about half this stuff. However, Diaz's r responses are fairly accurate and fairly faithful and not massive distortion because you can there is massive variations within the Roman Catholic Church if you get a load of priests get a load especially lay people or whatever let's continue Alex is that we are not a church of the book and this is why now officially the Roman Catholic Church will claim three forms of authority scripture is one of them, but also the magisterium and um, tradition. But, as Diaz will go on to describe and tell us, who decides? The church, the magisterium, basically um, the Roman Catholic Church themselves. They become the ultimate authority. So, for us, the church is first, the book is second. So, we know that... In a remarkable claim. A remarkable claim, actually. The book is second. The word of God is second. And what happens with that is the church is infallible. Church decides it. If you go against the church, well, you're going against God. Can't, you can't appeal to Scripture because the church is already... In practice, and, and to be honest, a Roman Catholic apologist might go, no, 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 that's not the three-legged stool... But in practice, that's what happens. The Roman Catholic Church is not a church of the book. The Old Testament, I mean, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures have been given to us. And in the Acts of the Apostles, when they speak of the scriptures, they're speaking of what we call the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is mostly written in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and what are the books of the Old Testament? There's some Um, No, just in case there's any confusion, very, very quickly, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. That's it. There's no... If he's maybe speaking about the Septuagint, which is a translation which includes the Apocryphal books or whatever, the Apocryphal books, um, he's going to talk about in a second, were never seen by the Jews ever as part of the Old Testament canon. The Old, the Old Testament canon never included books like uh, First and Second Maccabees, okay? It's only since the Reformation, it's only since the Council of Trent that those books were ever included in the first place. Um, you might go back to quotes from Augustine and you might find Augustine talking about like a kind of a, I can't remember the exact term he used, you know, kind of an inner and an outer canon like the canon in a proper sense, was the 66 books of the Bible, which you have today. Sometimes in a looser sense, Augustine, there might be quotes from Augustine, which includes the Apocrypha or something like that. But that's all he's really referring to. Anyway.
democracy? Right. Would you have those seven books that are written only in Greek and do they belong or not belong? And for us, what are called often the Deuterocanonical canonical books are canonical. So there's 47 books in the Old Testament and we take the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures are the basis uh, because we come out of the Jewish religion. Uh, in terms of the New Testament, with Catholics, it is the community writing down that. So the community is the authentic interpreter of scripture. The ch I keep doing this, I put this on YouTube <laughs> too often. Um, the interpreter basically becomes people. Um, no, scripture interprets scripture. You want to know what that part of scripture is telling you. The community, the consensus, councils, whatever, can be wrong. They can be wrong. How do, what is the infallible interpreter of scripture? We compare spiritual things with spiritual things. Church is the authentic interpreter of scripture. So if we want to know what it means, it comes out of the church, obviously inspired, God is the author, inspired by God, but it's the, the authentic interpretation, meaning the interpretation is meant for everyone. So yeah, we, longer, if that's confusing somebody, it's basically this, the church will tell you what it says. The magisterium or whatever. Now, we've also got to be careful that we're not so rapidly, in response to Roman Catholicism, we're not so anti-tradition that we think we're the only people who are ever going to see the truth of a certain text. If you are right, how you're interpreting, how you're comparing Scripture with Scripture, and allowing the Word of God to interpret and tell you what the Word of God means. For example, a simple way of doing this is just so you get a difficult part of Scripture, the clearer part, the easier, the quote-unquote easier part, the one that's much more clear, should interpret that difficult part. Not all parts of Scripture are alike, and the, the Word of God should. But at the same time, we're not going to be the first people that the Holy Spirit has led and guided coming to that conclusion. Again, we're not the interpreters. It's Scripture. Scripture with Scripture telling us exactly. For example, if you want to interpret, go to a book that's notoriously difficult to interpret and it's caused, you know, d division and everything else, the book of Revelation. How do you find out what the book of Revelation, what do these symbols and all this kind of stuff mean? You just kind of go, oh, it says what it means, it means what it says, or do you kind of go with along to the fact that it's rendered into signs signified by the Spirit? You have to compare the book of Revelation with many of the, the, the symbols and signs reveal, mostly in the Old Testament. When you see it referring to they are not Jews but are the synagogue of Satan, it's not talking about literal Jews, it's talking about spiritual Jews. The whole book needs to be interpreted by Scripture, and also in its proper genre, etc., and so on. As a reader of Scripture, can read the Scriptures and understand it for yourself, understand what it means for you, it can draw you into the Lord. Yeah, what it means for you is, um, yeah, you can take that, but then... 
Yeah, there's almost these like different layers of authority. Well, what does it mean for you? No, scripture is clear. I can't just kind of go read a section on, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery or something like that and think, hmm, what does that mean for you? No, that's authoritative and binding on the whole church. By the way, this was not what was done historically in Roman Catholic circles. It was not. Sorry, I'm not on the screen. You weren't allowed to have the scriptures. Actually, the reading, the Roman Catholic Church for centuries saw the reading of the scriptures as a source of heresy. They needed to keep the word of God in the vernacular languages out of the hands of the people because they, oh, they couldn't understand it. This is just a modified form of that. I'm not saying that this man here speaking is consciously aware of that, probably doesn't know anything about that. However, at the same time, the man is still a false teacher. Let's, let's not mince our words here. He's still a false teacher, still leading people with a false gospel to hell. Watch your beer attitude to Roman Catholic priests. Share the gospel with them. I'm not saying don't. Share the gospel with them. But when they want to engage in fellowship and they try to win you over to their um, apostasy um, in the nicest way possible, and if they reject that, if they reject the truth, maybe they've never considered it, maybe just completely ignorant, maybe you'll get an opportunity to share the gospel. But at the same time, we must remember what Galatians 1 tells us, verses 8 and 9, but, uh, verse, sorry, 6. I marvel that, you've, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. But as we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. He's accursed. He's under the wrath of God, clearly. We're not talking about perhaps the... The minister who's in a somewhat liberal denomination, he's not exactly sure where he stands, given the benefit of the doubt. Let's hear what he says. But when you're in the Roman Catholic communion, performing the blasphemy of the Mass week in and week out, these are enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, if you get an opportunity, an opening, share the gospel. A person might be in... There might be a legit, like I'm, I'd be very heavily critical, of course, of this professing Protestant who's interviewing this guy because he's so positive towards Roman Catholicism. He's practically promoting it. Um, what could he have done? Now, is there a legitimate time when you could interview somebody and maybe you just want to get the horse's mouth and what Roman Catholics believe and say and all that for a documentary? Sure. But don't give your thumbs up to it. I think perhaps a way you could do it as a, you know, a documentary filmmaker, interview the person, ask them the question. And when they're finished at the end, give them a tract, share the gospel with them. Something like that. We are not giving your approval to their apostasy. 
heard, but in terms of yes, definitively, this is what this means or what it points to, that would be done through the church. Okay, which, which I think points us right to one of the places where I think Protestants and Roman Catholics see things a little bit differently, and that's on the question of you know, what is the church, and, and I, if I'm using the term right, apostolic succession. So apostolic succession has to do with bishops. Okay. So what apostolic succession speaks about is that this particular bishop follows in line of what Jesus taught. So what we see often enough in the gospel story is that the... Very simply, and I don't want to get kind of bogged down in a lot of things here, um, the true apostolic succession, if you want to talk about that, is in the scriptures. How do you know that this teacher... Now, bishop is just another name for overseer, and that would be far more inclined towards... Um, be better to you know to say overseer because bishop historically has always been misunderstood. Bishop is really just synonymous with the term elder or you know pastor or whatever else. They are essentially the same role: shepherds, overseers. There's no indication anywhere in the New Testament, or especially in the Old Testament, that the elders had any kind of degree of hierarchy. There was, in the Old Testament, you know, that developed into what, you know, the Sanhedrin or whatever. And, and eldership goes right back to the book of Exodus. And you see the elders coming together for a controversy in Acts chapter 15. No indication anywhere in the New Testament of a hierarchy. And how do you know that this person is teaching according, is teaching the truth? It, you compare it with Scripture. Scripture is to be our standard. For the Word of God is to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, not the reasoning of men. Disciples are the ones who are, who are doing the work. So let's take the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. When in the synoptic, and it f appears in all four Gospels. So in the synoptic tradition, Jesus breaks the bread, bread blesses it. Um, for those of you not aware, just so you get, don't get lost here, synoptic, you know, comes from synoptic Gospels. Comes from the word, like, to see together. Three of the Gospels are called synoptic Gospels. The, the th Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are regarded as the synoptic gospels. Gives it to his disciples who then give it to the people. Okay. So what we think is, is that that's done so that the people in the early church can understand that the apostles are doing the same thing that Jesus did. Right? Because now they, they're, they're new Christians and they didn't get to see Jesus. They're, they know people that knew Jesus, okay. but they themselves never saw Jesus. So how do I know that what Jesus wants us to do is what we're doing today? Uh, very simply, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. 
That's how you know. And, and, and we use that in the ordination of each bishop in the sense that this bishop is in an apostolic line back to... Man becomes the authority. And again, it's the same over and over, same authority deviated and in a sly, cunning way. Authority is taken away from the word of God, pointed towards men. Oh, no, he's just passed it on. Mm -mm. The, look, there is an authority in the eldership. There is an authority in church government, but it is a subordinate authority under the word of God. The, the sola scriptura does not mean that the only authority in the church is the word of God. It is not. It is not. People say, oh, you know, you know, people don't go to church. Some people don't go to church and say, oh, it's just me and my Bible. That's not Sola Scriptura. By the way, that same Bible tells you to go to church. That same Bible tells you to submit to elders. Hebrews 10, 25 and uh, Hebrews 13, 17. Not forsaking of the assembly of ourselves together. We are to, and it's a subordinate authority. Now, if, if an elder tells you to do something in contradiction, I mean, look, proper shepherding should not be heavy shepherding, should be not be micromanaging. It is more in terms of discipline, guiding gently along and things like that. But if somebody's involved in sin, and there's discipline involved, you should submit to it. If you don't submit to it, you're, you're possibly demonstrating that you're a reprobate, that you do not belong to Christ. But anyway, Sola Scriptura says that we, all doctrine, worship, and everything is tested by the Word of God. It is the sole and final authority. But there's subordinate authorities, the church, and also people get kind of get confused about this when we talk about creeds and confessions. Now, if you're a Presbyterian in a church that holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith, a subordinate authority is the Westminster Confession of Faith in that church. And that is basically the the elders say that this is what the word of God says this is what represents the Word of God. Otherwise, there's no standards whatsoever. And by the way, people say, oh, well, that's setting up a different standard. The Westminster Confession of Faith points to the Word of God as that source of theology. You've got one in front of me here. If you, if you, look, just read chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It points towards the Word of God and says what the canon of Scripture is. Because everybody says, including... Look, you could ask a Mormon, you could ask a Jehovah's Witness, and the Mormons will add, you know, the stuff, the writings of Joseph Smith or whatever. But lots of people say, oh, well, I believe the Bible. That's not a statement of faith. The Nicene Creed came out and distinguished Arians from non-Arians. You know, the, you know, the Orthodox believers from those who were heretics and diminished the deity of Christ. And then formulations and clarifications help. Time of the first disciples. And at, at times in history, it seems like there have been like some challenges or some rough spots to that. I think of the problem in North Africa that Augustine 
came to kind of clean up with the Donatists. Right. I think of the, um, the Avignon papacy sure. in the high middle ages. Um, how, how do Roman Catholics, how do, how do you deal with that part, the parts where it looks like, oh man, which is the right thread to follow is the correct apostolic succession? Well, the one that we followed was the right one. <laughs> you know, I okay. don't know. How do you know? You just, yeah. that's, yeah, we think that's the one. Okay. And, um, and I think historically we can go back and see that that was true. There's a, a phrase that, that I think is pretty intimidating to a lot of my Protestants. So that's the thing, isn't it? You get which line do you follow and all this kind of stuff. And it becomes, uh, again, very simply the word of God. You test everything by the word of God. And as Gregory, no one to history is Gregory the Great, Gregory the First, Bishop of Rome at the time, late 6th century. I'm kind of paraphrasing him now. And this is quoted in, in Calm's Institutes as well. Anybody who takes the title of universal bishop is the forerunner of Antichrist. Gregory the Great at the time had a massive problem with John of Constantinople in the East. It was I think it was the emperor at the time taking that title to himself. A bishop, I think a bishop or two later, Boniface the Third, was a six or six, six or seven A.D takes the title universal bishop. And that's generally speaking when historically Protestant historians, not anymore. That's, that's the part of the confession that can be tossed out for people. And it's not just the Westminster Confession of Faith that states that the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist. Pretty much all of them, and I can't off the top of my head, I'm not, the Belgic mightn't, but I might be wrong on that, but pretty much all, if not all, of the Protestant creeds point to the Pope of Rome as the Antichrist, the Waldenses, Bogomils, Paulicians, all these groups going back to at least about the 8th century, possibly foreshadows of it even before the Pope of Rome was revealed as the Antichrist in the 7th century. Going back to Tertullian, certain things that he said in his commentary was in Second Thessalonians, I think it was. Um, yeah. And it's papal infallibility, right. which, as I understand, in the grand scheme of Roman Catholic history is a more recent officialized doctrine. But... I think one of the misunderstandings, uh, misunderstandings about it seems to be that whatever a pope does Correct. is automatically right. But I, I get the impression it's more nuanced than that. How does papal infallibility work? I want to say through God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but so papal infallibility is that in teach in a particular teaching on faith or morals, a dogmatic teaching is to be considered to be true, so that. And what happens is, is that there are theologians, scholars on both sides of an issue. So some people say this, and some people say that. And both could be valid explanations. Okay. Uh, and so when it comes necessary to make 
a definitive decision, then that, that's use, the use of papal infallibility. Say that this... And let, let's take their d definition of it. So whenever you make a definitive statement on something, you are infallible. I suppose you could say, well, why don't you just do it all the time? Why, why say all the foolish things that popes have said that contradict each other? If you can be infallible all the time, why not do it? And you will search in vain to find anything that suggests anything outside of the infallible authority of the, again this is a deviation taking away authority from the scriptures and placing it in men how is that possible um you see because if you stand against the pope of rome you're standing against god and this is why throughout the centuries roman catholic persecutors because they thought god was on their side could so zealously hunt down murder butcher because they thought that they were serving God and doing it. Astonishing thing. question is now settled. Is there some formal announcement that says, hey, this is really official? Yes. Okay, so there's no guesswork as there's to no guesswork. when we're speaking in this way right. versus when we're not. Right. Okay. And what happens to the, the old doctrine when that happens? Is it... If the official word is given, is it required for everybody to come on board with that understanding? Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, so the Catholic teaching is this. Any other opinion would be contrary to the Catholic. <laughs> uh, you know, the video has this. The doctrine of papal infallibility has actually only been invoked twice. Once in 1870 established itself. <laughs> I just like, you can't make this stuff up. Um, and again, in 1950, to cement the assumption of Mary as an official Catholic article of faith. I'm reading from the video here. Um, yeah. You, you know, the, the doctrine of papal infallibility has been invoked to say, oh, by the way, I'm infallible. Anybody else see a problem with that? What's your authority? I'm right in everything. When I say it, when? Well, when I say it, why? Anybody else noticing the circular reasoning? Um, and then there was the doctrine, 19, was it 1950? Around 1950, at least. Um, the doctrine of Assumption of Mary. Yeah, it, it wasn't there until 1870. Prior to that, there's been some horrendously blasphemous statements about of the Pope of Rome being God manifest in the flesh throughout the centuries. They would see him as the voice of God. This just kind of covers them when it's documented what they say is false. Understanding Catholic faith. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's so, so different than the way my Protestant brain is wired where I don't know, to a degree, there's kind of just this endless wrestling that goes on and on. So on the one hand, like, I don't know, my feisty indes independent. Um, there's a really good comment been made in 
the in the chat room here. It says the claim that he's only speaking infallibility when he's speaking on faith and morals. What part of life as Christian does uh, as a Christian does not doesn't fall under the two categories? It's true. Faith and morals, and are you? Are, is there a time when you just not? So it's only been twice in the la- and the distinction is basically made by them. They infallibly decide when they're going to be infallible. The popes. Oh, I know the angle that they're trying to spin on this. Well, it's not all the time and those times. Well, how do you know that they can infallibly decide? What authority has been telling you that these proclamations at certain times are infallible? There's nothing. And anyway... Look, if you're to be a spiritual teacher, somebody who's teaching the truth, then every single time you you preach a sermon, it's on faith and morals. Again, really good point made by somebody there in the chat room. Spirit kind of likes that. On the other hand, I can see the appeal of also just, hey, we're not going to spin our wheels on this for two millennia. Right. We're going to land on this point. And we're going to move forward. So, um, why Rome? Why why not? Um... So Rome was the patriarch of the West. So Rome was the government capital of the world at that time. And so why God chose Rome? I don't know. He probably. Liked- um, yeah, he doesn't really kind of go into that really in detail or anything, but. In the early church, it was like five major centers. Very, very quickly, this is a very quick explanation of it. The others, you know, Antioch and uh, Alexandria, they all fell in Jerusalem. And then you were left with um, Rome in the west and Constantinople in the east. See, that's the thing. But, you know, when you look at the early church and you see the early church fathers talk about the Catholic Church. They're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is, in a real sense, only really a creation since the 16th century. In res- it was a response of an apostate church to the Reformation. Because, you know what? There were elements of the gospel. There were elements of some people who taught the gospel even in the times a little bit before Luther. Luther then points a massive spotlight on the gospel. But let's never think that the gospel was completely extinguished. It was an incredibly dark time. Let's not. Let's not forget that. Italians. History. <laughs> probably likes, I think he likes Italians. Yeah. I like Italians. Pasta. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was, of course, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Patriarch of Rome, the Patriarch uh, in Alexandria, the Patriarch in, in Antioch, but the West was centered in Rome. Peter seems to hold a really unique place of honor in the Roman tradition. I mean, sure. I don't know, I, I think he's... It's always amongst, Peter, James, and John. There you go. And, and I think amongst Protestants, like, I think he's yeah. our favorite because yeah. he's... I mean, he's a guy who rightly identifies Jesus as the Christ when before that only right. a Canaanite woman and right. a demon had got it right. 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 And finally, it's Peter who right. gets this thing right. Jesus seems to really affirm him getting that right. Yes. And, and then get behind me, Satan. Uh, and, and then that. Right. And so you've got this guy 
who's a bumbling disaster part of the time, but he also walked on water for a minute. Right. But also he's the one who said, I'd never, ever, ever, ever leave you. And then like, you know, two seconds later, right. he does. And so for Protestants, I think he's particularly beloved because right. he's like us. Right. But I sense that in Catholicism, there's something really uniquely appreciated about him making that confession. Where does that factor in so theologically? I think that what people point to is the, key, the keys of heaven. So that, you know, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and the keys to the kingdom. So we, when we imagine heaven, it's St. Peter that's got the key to the gate. Yeah, he's right, right there. Yeah. Right. With his little notebook and everything. Right, exactly. It's a computer now. Oh, is it? Okay. It used to be a big book. But okay. now he's gone digital, of yep. course. And so that, and coming out of that, and so if he has the keys to the kingdom, then he's the first of the disciples and that. But historically what happens is that Christianity moves to Rome, and so the Roman church the, the, of Rome ends up spreading. Just a quick um, quote here from, this is from William Webster, the Church of Rome at the Bar of History, page 49. There's a quote here from a Roman Catholic historian, Michael Winter, about Cyprian, Cyprian or the church father, when he, one of the few who did describe Peter as the rock. This is what Michael Winter says about this. Cyprian used the Petrian text of Matthew to defend Episcopal authority, but many later theologians influenced by the papal connections to the text, have interpreted Cyprian in a pro-papal sense, which was alien to his thought. Cyprian would have used Matthew 16 to defend the authority of any bishop. This is Roman Catholic historian Michael Winter. But since he happened to employ it for the sake of the Bishop of Rome... It created the impression that he understood it as referring to papal authority. Catholics as well as Protestants are now are now generally agreed that Cyprian did not attribute a superior authority to Peter. So there was nothing about a hierarchy or anything like that understood. Episcopalianism kind of came in early into the church, so they generally look to the scriptures in order to defend that. Let's continue. Spain, what, what becomes Spain, what becomes France, what becomes Germany, Poland, you know, up above, up above, England, Ireland, and yeah. that. You know, so those are huge masses of people that now, in terms of numbers, the Roman church is much larger than the other Egypt because it's, it's more centered in a country and in a language. So the Coptic Egypt or Palestine itself or Antioch or Greece, much smaller, fewer numbers. So the Bishop of Rome kind of ends up politically more powerful. And, and that's what, that turns into what we call the papacy. So if I'm hearing you right, I'm, I'm hearing. It's interesting how, I'm not sure if he's exactly admitting that it, the papacy didn't arrive overnight. There were, like the word papa in the Latin word papa, even today in Italian, it just means father. Um, there's papa, the people refer to their, you know, kind of daddy. This is not where I was living in Tuscany. They say more babbo, but anyway. Um, 
the rest of Italy, I think they do, especially in places like Rome. And then there's Il Papa, the Pope. And they kind of just understand that that's what it means. It's referring to the Pope in Rome. Um, that's been kind of turned into, you know, the English version of that. The, it's basically the Father. So it's easy to find references. But you have to realize that the office of what we understand today as the Pope, the papacy, took many centuries. And in a large sense, even what came up around Boniface III, wasn't it developed in its full-fledged, heinous, apostate, antichrist character? That it reached the height of its pomp really later on with the papacy of people like Innocent III, Boniface VIII. It's quite diminished since then. So people kind of just think that, oh, there's the papacy and that's it. A lot of the the papal claims, especially in the 8th century, were attributed, were basically the authority and the pomp and all that was given to the Roman pontiff came from a, a forged document known as the Donation of Constantine. It was acknowledged to be, Cameron, it was an Italian humanist scholar. Not in the sense we understand humanists today, but humanists in terms of learning and the humanities. And I can't remember the name off the top of the head, but I think it was during the 16th century. It was, anyway, the, the, the donation of Constantine was discovered to be a forgery, along with the a number of supposed epistles supporting Rome's claims. Rome was notorious for producing forgery after forgery after forgery. So much so that the Eastern Church kind of got sick of dealing with them because they would just... Spurgeon would write about in the 19th century, for example, that they would just pr produce these fake relics of all the pieces, the so-called pieces of the cross that were there around the world were put together. They'd probably be able to go to the moon. I can't remember where that quote comes from, but just the absurdity of it. A theological rationale for Peter's connection with Rome, and maybe I'm just filling in the gaps there myself, I'm hearing a historical rationale for just the way the missionary impulse of Christianity naturally moved was right. off into Europe, right. the gateway to which would be Rome. I'm hearing um, a political rationale, that is people already had been looking to Rome for a few centuries as a seat of authority, and even when the capital gets moved east in the right. third century, there's still this mindset of Rome right. as being this unique position. So that's interesting. I didn't expect that. Yeah, and Peter dies in Rome, so I mean, okay. you know, so it's like he's he's so special. He dies in Rome, and so over time, keep it in the mute. Um, we don't know that. That's been claimed. It's often been claimed as well that Peter died elsewhere, not with Paul, but be that as it may. Successors take on more authority and to what we would have today. And the assumption then is that those keys are transferable. Correct. And so that the authority of Peter is transferred to the next bishop, the next overseer, bishop, overseer of the community of Rome. Which is and why again, ordination, right, I apologize. Right. But we can't, we don't, you know, we put a lot of how we see it today back
Um, again, there's lots of places you could stop, but I'm just going to look very, very quickly. What were the keys? Now, the, another separate debate is of church government. Who are they given to? Congregationalists will say they're given to everybody in the church, a large um, Presbyterian, like I am myself, would it goes to the elders. You could say bishops, not in the Episcopal sense now, but every elder is himself a bishop or an overseer or a pastor. Essentially, they're all shepherds, really, even the ruling elders as well. Now, but what were the keys? It says, um, Matthew 16, 18. I'll also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth, you shall will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's also a very similar quote to quote in Matthew 18, 18, which says the following, you know, compare scripture with scripture. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be loosed, bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's referring, and what is Matthew 18, 18 immediately following? Church discipline. The loosing is referring to the forgiveness of sins or the sins being bound. How are the keys exercised? The preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel and discipline. That way, you see, again, in a very subtle sense, Rome continues to take power, authority, and honor and glory from the God of heaven, sadly. You know, the year 63 or 65 or 80, I mean, they were, you know, in, in language, they were in mud huts compared to what we're doing today. Okay. You know, okay. in other words, it was very basic, you know, and, and not as ornate and not as built up. Sure. I mean, it takes centuries to get to where we are today, obviously enough. So within Protestantism then, it makes sense that ordination is, um, is an ordinance of the church, but not a sacrament because we're not handing on right. a, you know, an apostolic succession that right. must be unbroken. Right. But that explains to me, as I'm sitting here listening, why this is one of the seven sacraments right. within Roman Catholicism. So you have so you to be, get that right. You have to be ordained with someone who has that portion of the spirit. So the spirit is transferred from one person to the next. And, and it's uh, when we take it. What a disgusting blasphemy. Just the whole idea that the, the spirit can be passed around by the deeds of men. That is in the power of men to dispense of the spirit. No, I think just, you know, rather than saying it in my own words, if you just go to John 3. I think it's verse 5. 
Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. It's interesting, too, if you think about the word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, and it's also the word for wind. And there's this picture here. The wind blows where it wishes, and again, you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it goes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a whole picture of you. You don't know where the wind is going to go. Does that line up with, well, everybody you baptize is going to be regenerated? For anybody believes that of for baptism regeneration. Does it fit in with that at all? No. God is sovereign. God is in control. And the people who are born again, the people who are regenerated, will trust in Jesus Christ. It's not because they trust Jesus Christ that they become born again, but because the Spirit of God has made them alive, open their eyes, been merciful to them. Otherwise, they have no hope. Otherwise, they'll never come. In this system, it makes the church, the works of men, the labor of men, in control of the, the Spirit of God. No. The wind blows where it wishes. Not where we wish it to go, where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Of discipleship. I mean, it's a form of discipleship. And thus the value on tradition, which, which doesn't just mean like, you know, habits and stuff. Like tradition right. really so we comes with it. So big T and little T. Big tradition are things that are passed on. And this is, this is kind of how what we believe and what, what we do. Okay. Little traditions are like customs. Okay. You know, that people do it this way or that way. As we were talking before about the making the sign of the cross. Oh yeah. And then I'm doing kissing the cross like that. That's a little T tradition. Okay. So you don't have to, to follow that. And it's, you know, so you don't have to kiss your hand or, or that. Um, but the big T traditions are our teachings that we pass on from one generation to this. They're not dogmatic. Now, there's nothing wrong with a tradition per se. No, let me finish what I'm going to say. If it comes originally from the Word of God, they are good traditions. For example, if there's a tradition in your church of... I'm well, trying to think of something that's... Okay, of the way that the Lord's table is done and is based upon the Word of God, tradition is just simply something passed down from generation to generation. We shouldn't be, there's a danger in being so anti tradition, but everything must be subordinate to the Word of God and tested by the Word of God. Tradition doesn't become its own separate authority, equal to, in, in terms of, you know, the way the Catholic Catechism will describe it. But then it becomes, well, who decides what tradition outweighs Scripture in this place? Well, the church decides it. Man, again, becomes the measure, blasphemously, 
of all these things? teachings in the sense that it's, you know, the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. Oh, sure. But, like creedal stuff. Yeah. So it's not the creed, but a tradition or understanding of how things work. Okay. So where, where does canon law fit into these categories? So canon law is different. Okay. So, so canon law is the compilation of the rules that we follow in different situations. So there is the first code, real code of canon law is in 1918, I believe. And again, I don't believe there's anything necessarily wrong with this, a code per se, you know, for disciplinary cases and certain cases, but everything must be subordinate to the word of God if you're going to do this biblically, because there were, in our own denomination, for example, we have a code that is amended. And a lot of the things will be just pre-procedures, so everything's a bit more streamlined or whatever, but it is not our final authority. It's the Word of God as a final authority. But it may state in our, in our denomination, in, you know, in our code, for example, how often or how to have a general assembly or the voting procedure or whatever else like that. But everything submit, to submit to the Word of God. 1918? Yeah, I think that's the first one. Oh. And the second one is 1983. <laughs> what, what were they, what so were they before, drawing on? Well, before every place, there, was, there, were, there were laws and canons, but they weren't formalized into a book. So every okay. place has rules. How do we do this? What's required? In Italy, they... I think a lot of it historically had to do with... Um, if you go back to the Papal States and the fall of Papal States, and the Papal States, what, they fell between 1866, or in the 1860s, was it 1866 to 1870, right before pa the Vatican won Papal Infallibility, and I think very much so Papal Infallibility was brought in to galvanize a politically damaged church. Because now the political authority of a statehood had been taken away from the Pope of Rome and wasn't given back to the Pope of Rome until Mussolini. Was it in 19... I think it was 1922, if I'm not mistaken. It was in 1929. It was 1920s anyway. And then... See, we forget this as well, that the Pope of Rome is not just the head of a religion, false antichrist religion, but he's also the head of a state. But I agree. I mean, we, we, we forget that so often. He's also head of a state. Um, the point I was going to make here. Weren't formalized into a book. Oh, yeah. Look, uh, and a lot of things I think have been formalized in the last hundred years, a lot of it due to the relative weakness of the Roman Catholic Church to, to fortify it against further hemorrhaging. My point is this, this whole unbroken line, all this kind of stuff that they claim, it, it's easy to debunk. And that's why I recommend William Webster's book and other books like it to show that it's just pure fiction. So every okay. place has rules. How do we do this? What's required? 
In Italy, they do it this way, and in Germany, they do it this way. Hmm. So now we're going to decide how we're all going to do it the same way. Okay, and so it is more uniform now so since 1918. Uniform. Right. And that canon law has to do with, what, like church structure, church organization? It's an organizational, I mean, there, okay. are, there are various books and there are laws on the sacraments. So this isn't where you're formulating like a theology of salvation. No, no, no. This is about the, this is, the This is all administrative okay. in, in one way or the other. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, they're trying to make it a little more spiritual in 1983, okay. but it's basically a, a rule book. Well, so. I, guess, I guess to the question I was just bringing up there then, I, how does, one, how does one become a Christian in Roman Catholicism? How is one forgiven for their sins in Roman Catholicism? How does one go to heaven in Roman Catholicism? For us, all sacraments are from God. So it has, we only respond to God. Okay, we're going to have to define what a sacrament is. Go to Romans chapter 4, Old Testament sacrament, circumcision, placed by baptism in the New covenant what is a sacrament a sacrament is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace or the inward we'll stick to the covenant of grace it is a sign and seal of the grace of god for example all the covenants going throughout the bible have sacraments of varying degrees um in the garden of eden there was the sacrament unto death which is the the tree of knowledge of good and evil the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not in itself what brought you could say the the sin it was rebellion against god now this was a kind of an outward test then there was the tree of life which they had access to as long as they stayed faithful to god as long as they obeyed god perfectly then then, as soon as the fall of Adam came in, and all humanity were in Adam, there was there was the need of grace by grace alone, and the only way anybody could have a relationship with God was by grace and by grace alone. After the fall of Adam, and then the covenants, as they were progressively revealed in Noah, the rainbow was, and we still have that sacrament today. It was a seal of the goodness and kindness of God every single time, right? It rains. We should. When we see a rainbow, we should thank God. We should think, praise God for his mercy. My girl sometimes will ask me, it's like, why, why did God flood the earth? Because of sin. And why won't God, you know, I think we get into the conversation, why won't God flood the earth again? Because he promised not to. And the sign and seal of that promise is that rainbow of the Noahic Covenant. We still have that today. Otherwise, there would be more judgment, deserved judgment upon our sin. And you can go into various other things, but just focusing on the, the bloody sacraments, such as circumcision, the removing of the foreskin of the flesh, pointing towards circumcision, the promises of God, to remove the filth of the flesh that's later replaced by an unbloody sacrament, baptism in the New Testament, and they, they signify and seal the same thing, they point towards the same thing, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, talk about spiritual baptism, spirits of circumcision basically more or less meaning the same thing pointing towards the same thing and then you have the Lord's table 
and previously in the Old Testament, you had Passover, Passover being bloody, replaced by unbloody sacrament um, in the bread and the wine. Yes, they come from God. But by partaking of the sacraments, do we automatically get that grace? See, a sacrament is a sign and a it is a sign. It points toward the reality. It is not the reality of, of itself. It says in the scriptures as well that if we eat and drink, if we partake of the Lord's table unworthily without examining ourselves, that we're not in Christ, that we're never been born again, we eat and drink damnation unto ourselves. Augustine put it like this, a sacrament is the visible word. It puts before us visibly the promises of God. But the sacrament, but just like the word of God preached to us, if we don't believe it, it will condemn us. If we do believe, it will bless us. As in, if we believe the reality that is set before us in baptism, essentially the gospel, if we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be washed from our sin. So it points toward the reality. It is not the reality of itself. For example, you would never think if you're driving towards a city and you see a signpost for a city. You don't think that the signpost is exactly the same as the city itself. So that was the mistake that the church drifted into over the medieval ages. Yes, the sacraments are a means of grace. Yes, they are a blessing. Yes, they strengthen our faith. But they're not to be detached from the word of God. And they are to point toward the reality which is pointed in the word of God. They are to set before us the promises of God in the gospel. The sacraments, the visible word. The gospel preached the audible word. Before he gets into this. So there is no sense that you are doing anything. Okay. okay. Yeah. So yeah, we'd agree often, on that. Often in baptism of babies, I tell the mom and dad, it looks like you drove your child here to church. Okay. But in fact, God has chosen your child for the gift of baptism. There are thousands and thousands of people that were born at the same time. But for some reason, God has chosen your child for the gift of baptism. So it's what if the church ref refuses to baptize that child? You see, then the church decides the, the decision of the church becomes exact same as the decision of God, even an apostate church in this case. This is the massive danger. And there's elements of this, by the way, in professing Protestantism today. You've got the, the, federal, the federal vision movement. 
this whole objectivity of the covenant. Where it's, yeah, you get in by faith, but you stay in by works. E.P. Sanders, new perspective on Paul. So much John Piper stuff, sadly. Um, there's lots of ways to corrupt the gospel. We've got to be vigilant that our efforts, or the efforts of anybody else, you see, in Roman Catholicism, faith is not the alone instrument in salvation. The sacraments also are. The sacraments are signs and seals. They point towards the reality. But look, you, you may not be baptized, or you should be baptized is, you know, obedience, and that you become part of the visible church. But it's possible for somebody to believe and not part of the visible church. Look at the thief on the cross. Never baptized, but still, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by faith and by faith alone, went to heaven. Always God who moves first. Mm -hmm. So... Um... The, the parents drove the child to, to the baptism, by the way. It is a work. Okay. There's a sense in which you can say, yeah, God brought them, but there's a sense in which you could say, there's the decretive will and the prescriptive will. You really talk about the decretive will here, but um, talk about, this is, this is just sophistry. Does that line up? with what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. No, um, in this case, according to Rome, the wind blows where Rome wishes. Ordination rite, an ordination rite, you are not ready for ordination until the bishop chooses you. So there's a little ceremony in the beginning of the ordination rite where there's a dialogue and is this candidate prepared? Do you, the people who, the seminary school, recommend him for the gift of priesthood? Yes, we recommend him. He's a good candidate. The bishop says, I choose you for ordination to the presbyteral order. And then all the people applaud because it's God choosing that person. It's not me, it's God who makes the movement. Mm -hmm. So for an adult though, we make them go through a process for two years. <laughs> so God chooses and draws people in. They ask questions. We have a program called Inquiry so they come as a group, sit, talk, probably six, eight weeks. And it depends on person to person. Person who's never been baptized or person who's baptized in another faith community, ask questions. And then when they're ready to move to the next step, they become catechumens, like in the early church. And they're catechumens for body. Notice how he never really answers the question. The gospel never comes up. It's never like, Trust in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's, no, there's nothing like that. It is 
well, you know, if you've never heard of the thing, you've got to go through catechumen, you've got to be, um, you get baptized. Yeah, why? Because they see baptism, baptism regeneration, and then you stay within the church. And they will describe that initial part, by the way, as grace alone, and say, well, God does that. And Council of Trent will quote from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Roman Catholic Church, as inconsistent as it is and everything, claim that the initial part is by faith alone, and then it is by faith and works to remain in by staying away from mortal sin and things like that, and continuing to participate in the sacraments. It's, it's sacramental salvation. Join the church, do what we say, and you can't be sure. In Roman Catholicism, you can't be sure. I remember thinking of the sin of presumption. I remember I got saved, and for the first month, I didn't know I could have assurance of salvation. Then realizing I could, I was like, well, it was very clear to me that you could. I trusted God. And a catechumen studies more formally, learn this, learn that, ask okay. questions and that. And then just before Easter, they become the elect. So the bishop chooses them for the gift of baptism. So they're elect. And there's a ceremony for that. And then there's a, in the six weeks of Lent. How do you become a Christian? This is the... The church makes you a Christian. Oh, no, it's not us. It's really God. Yeah. Well, hmm. Prepare, prepare, prepare. And then at Easter, they're baptized. Hmm. So baptized. Okay, we're going to, we're not going to be able to get through this video in the time that I wanted to. There's a, Let's see here. There's one more thing that I wanted to look at that was particularly shocking. Um, you probably say, well, how much did he see? Uh, this is the last part, and we're going to look at about transubstantiation, and um, let's just play this. Let's okay, see. so the tabernacle here is where we, we keep the Blessed Sacrament. We have a light that lets people know that there. And it's just, it's the communion that's left over. And you can't... And untransubstantiate what is already cannot, the body and blood of cannot, Christ. This is what's on the screen. Transubstantiation concept that the substance of the communion bread and wine are literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. When the priest says, praise over them, though the elements still appear to remain as though they were physical. Um, as they were physically. Um, this is particularly bizarre and I think I can I can't discover anything more they can't discard of it they must bring it into this place in this cathedral let him explain it it's just utterly bizarre and substantiate okay so once it's the Eucharist it is the Eucharist which happens and there there okay so once you say the prayer it is Jesus so what is in here Are is the, all the post little prayer. tiny hosts <laughs> okay and, that. and so it's all post prayer post that's prayer. in here Okay. So we preserve that in here and we use it. And then over the centuries... You see, what happens is they go in there 
in that part of the cathedral to pray before Jesus bread, a, a wafer. What utter blasphemy? What utter blasphemy? They can't dispose of it or anything. They have to keep it there. Can't be untransubstantiated as as it was. Absolute ludicrous superstition. People say, well, you know, if I believe that was Jesus over there, then I believe there's Jesus here, and I'm going to come and pray. Well, where am I going to come and pray? Pray in an empty building? No, I'm going to come and Mm. pray, and then I'm going to light a candle, and then, you know, and now 2,000 years later, here we are. So this is, in, in Roman Catholic theology, this is part of the, the presence of Christ. Right, right. And in, in this church, it's here, again, because it, it belongs, I mean, in a way, you would say that the head is right here in this cruciform, oh, yeah. you know. So again, so everything is Christ. Christ is the altar, Christ is the people, Christ is the Eucharist, everything. Everything says it's Jesus. You're connecting the dots. <laughs> yeah with all of that for right. me better than anybody ever right. has. So thank you for your patience. You're, with welcome. My, you're welcome, you're uh, welcome, you're welcome. With my, my uh, fifth grade level questions here. Uh, something yeah. else that stands out to me back here. This. So I, that's a reliquary. I kind of suspect. Okay, um, and there's also a reliquary. Be inter- I'll play for it a little bit, but uh, this is shocking as well. Might so be. that's a reliquary, and a reliquary is, has something based on a saint. Okay. So what we say is that that is a relic of St. Mary Magdalene, who is the patron saint of our church. Cathedral of the Madeline is Mary Magdalene. So there's something a couple thousand years old in there? Yeah, so a little tiny bone fragment, and that's all we know. Okay. I mean, that's, we only have that, and it's... Yeah, um, almost don't know what to say. There Apparently there's bone fragments, and... How can you prove that? Uh, you just got to trust them. Because Rome is so faithful when it comes to things like this. Such a good track record when it comes to the um, the donation of Constantine and other things. Why would they keep, you know, they wouldn't make up things, would they, like that? No, 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 of course not. Um, and look, by the way, a lot of the times the priests themselves believe this. I'm not, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, but it's utter nonsense. Um, any questions before we finish up again? This is the last program, sadly, until about mid to late April. Just maybe you can follow on Facebook or something like that. Um, Paul Flynn, type in something, Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O, or type that into Twitter. And yeah, I was going to do something on Bethel Reading. Friday, but um, there's other, there's basically more material I want to cover with regards to Bethel Reading and um, just simply just don't have time to review the material. Um, so I, I say rather than rushing through it, I'm just going to leave that until April and um, other things because I do want to do more things on that area. Please give me your prayers. Uh, hoping to. By the 6th of March, I have to get a 5,000-word paper done on Alexander Henderson, which I'm really enjoying reading up on and uh, pretty much finished the research on that and 
but ready to start writing the paper. I have lots of notes on that. Uh, Alexander Henderson, for those of you not aware, it was a Westminster divine. He was a Scottish... Uh, basically, what John Knox was to his period, what Andrew Melville, who was the successor in Scotland, Alexander Henderson was to the Covenanter Scottish cause around the 16th, around 1638 with the National Covenant, and then um, played a vital role in the Westminster Standards. He was one of the main drafters, if not the drafter, of the Directory of Public Worship, and was very influential in the background of the Westminster Assembly. He died in 46, 1646, so he didn't live throughout the whole entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Very interesting uh, blessing to study through that. So um, I will might give you my, my lowdown on uh, what I've learned about him in April when we come back. Uh, thank you so much for everybody who listening. There wasn't much warning and there wasn't much, <laughs> basically... Uh, basically got back from church tonight and I just said, you know what, I'm dressed, ready, materials ready, and let's do this. If you are a, a Roman Catholic, I pray that none of this has ever come across, that it is to demean you. We want those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we want you to see the superstition, the the doctrine which is contrary to the word of God, contrary to reason, contrary to I mean worshiping a piece of bread, that's basically has become. And praying before bone fragments and things like this. This is what happens when the authority and the power is taken away from God and is placed in mere men, because what will happen is idolatry will flood in, and it's no longer sola de gloria. Man's ideas and man's mind and his brain is an idol-making factory. All I will say is a former Roman Catholic who spent the first 19 years of my life going regularly to Roman Catholic Mass. Then for a number of years I was an atheist. To flee from idolatry. To flee from sin. To flee from the wrath of God. To flee from the city of destruction and run to Christ. That priest had no answer Diaz had no answer to how do you become a Christian? How do you, how do you get saved? No answer to that. There's no gospel to that. Well, you know, get baptized. You're going to agree with us. Because faith in Roman Catholicism is mere mental assent to the facts of the gospel. That's faith in Romanism. John Owen kind of goes through that in some of his writings. Mere mental assent. The gospel calls us to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ 
to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Look, if you have any questions, megiddofilms at gmail.com. If it's a short question or whatever, search YouTube. I might be able to point towards other people on Sermon Audio, maybe answer the question a lot far better than I ever could. If you do contact me over the next two months, just be patient. It might take me a while to get back to you because I'm not going to be online as much. Um, please keep me in your prayers. Thank you so much for your support over the years. I mean, Megiddo Radio has now been going since 2011. <coughs> and yeah, it's what? Nine years, nearly. Nine years. So again so blessed to have the people who've been listening over a long period of time and thank you so much for those people who've emailed and but uh please give me your prayers when it comes to the exams because there's a lot of work to do you know, over the next what six weeks and um hopefully this has been a blessing to your soul this program it's been paul flynn may god bless you all <laughs>